0: This teaching is brought to you by Christian Family Church International. Well, good evening, Christian Family Church, and all those of you that are watching for the very first time. It's great to be with you this evening, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity that Apostle Fear and Dr. Bev have given me to minister the word to you today on this platform. Praise the Lord. Well, we're right in the throes of a new series It's complicated, but doesn't have to be. What a great title. Didn't Pastor Johnny last week do a great job in exposing the five lies fed to us as believers? Well, I believe that today you are going to be just as blessed by my subject that I'm not yet a specialist on, but praise God, I will be before Jesus returns. And when I tell you what the topic or the subject title is, I know you will agree with me. It's long been known that Christian Family Church doesn't only exist for its members, but it also exists for those who have yet to become members. So I'm aware that there may be some of you that do not know who I am, so allow me to introduce myself. I'm Pastor Andre. I'm married to Christine, my wife, Pastor Christine. We've been married for 26 years. We have two daughters. My eldest has just recently had baby Abigail, which makes us which makes me a grandfather and obviously Pastor Christine a grandmother. We've been involved with Christian Family Church for 25 years. And we've had the privilege to serve one of the greatest prayerful men of God that I have ever known and in my lifetime I believe will ever know. So being married for 26 years has afforded (laughs) afforded, afforded me the opportunity to make Many, many, many mistakes. And for those of you that have been part of Christian Family Church for many years, some of my mistakes, you'll be well acquainted with. And I think really that's what partly qualifies me today to be able to teach on this subject, marriage. It's complicated, but it doesn't have to be. Before we get into the body of the message, I'd like to make one or two statements as a means of introduction. First of all, and these are relevant to marriage. First of all, every single person on the earth is born selfish. Every single one of us were born selfish. Listen, you just have to have been a child or be a parent to know that kids are by nature selfish. Now, selfishness in itself is not not a bad thing. It means to care for oneself. So, So being selfish is okay when you're a child, but when you're 40, It's no longer good to be selfish. You see, the Lord wants us to move from being selfish to the point of where we share. Now, Shannon and Rebecca, my two daughters, I I clearly remember the days gone by. Whenever one would get a toy that wasn't the same, have you noticed that? Sometimes you just can't keep kids happy. (laughs) I'd get Shannon a toy and I'd get Rebecca a toy. And before long, you'd hear this shouting. You'd hear the shouting in the room. Mine, 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 mine. And eventually you just have to get up and you'd have to go and resolve it. Inevitably, one of my girls was not happy with what they had and they wanted what the other daughter had. So eventually you just have to jump in there when all patience is worn thin and you have to say to whoever's whining, just please give it to her. To which Shanna would respond, dad, it's mine. I said, listen, Rebecca's got stuff that's mine. But for the love of Pete, just to stop the arguing, please won't you just give it to her for peace's sake. So the Lord wants us to move from that selfish nature that we have to a sharing nature. There's nothing greater for a father than to witness his two daughters each receive their gifts, be thankful for it, and be willing to share with one another without fighting or arguing, you get this overwhelming sense of pride, thinking, you know what, I did it. And I believe the Lord feels exactly the same way when we as couples and husbands and wives migrate from being selfish to sharing. But let me just say this, ladies, as I speak about sharing, there are just some things that a husband is never going to share. Unfortunately, it's a weakness we have. And one of those things that we refuse to share is food. Correct. You know, it's amazing. We'll pull up to McDonald's or a, or a Burger King. And I'll say to Chris, what is it that you want? And you guys, will, you guys will attest to this. I'll say, babe, what do you want? She'll look at me and she'll say, nothing. I'll just share some of yours. Oh no, you, oh, no, you won't. No, you won't. What do you want? I don't know what it is with wives. They always want to dig into what is a man's. I'll say to her, listen. All that I've ordered for myself is mine. Even the fries that fall to the bottom of the bag, those are mine. Order what you We're not never going to share. You know something funny the other day? They were running a special just around the corner from us at a Greek place. They were selling pork and chicken wraps. So before we placed the order, I said to Christine, well, what is it that you want? She said, well, I want chicken. I I don't like pork. I said, great, because I'm chickened out. I don't want chicken. Order me pork. So anyway, we drive together to go and collect our order. It was a takeout order, being locked down. And so then we went and parked by the, by the little river that was there. And I'm eating my pork wrap. And I look at her and I said, what are you having? She looks at me. She says, a pork wrap. I said, what's left in the bag? She said, the chicken wraps. I said, oh, great. So you've now gone and eaten. You get the point? Ladies, men are never going to share food. And the second thing they're never going to share is a television remote. When we do get hold of that thing, especially once the kids are out the house, when we get hold of that thing, I promise you we cling onto it like nobody's business. Today, I'm not going to be giving you 10 steps. With that as a backdrop, I'm not going to be giving you 10 steps. I really just want to focus on one today and if we together can just get this one thing right with relation to marriage I believe we will be far stronger in our union with one another and so my message title under this banner of it's complicated but doesn't have to be my message title is becoming one you know the word one in the English language has actually two definitions Very interesting. And these two definitions are completely opposite from one another. The first definition is singular. For example, there is one more peanut butter rusk left in the packet. Don't even think about it. It's singular. The second definition of one is this. Together in unity. Now that in itself is a message because what one is telling us in Scripture is that we start singular. But when it comes to marriage, God wants us to grow where we are in unity together with one another. So here's a question. How do we become one? Now I'm going to be reading from a common scripture that we all may very well know. But there is something specific that I would like to point out, and I'm going to kick over a few sacred cows in my message today. Preconceived ideas that we may have had about what makes for a really good marriage, and I'm going to be touching on a few of those things. But take very careful notice of what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. It says this, it says, therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother. Great advice. Listen, my message is not about that, but I cannot help but take a moment to mention that there are just some men that for whatever reason cannot cut the apron strings from their mom. And way back in the book of beginnings, God says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So one could argue, has a man really le- really been joined to his wife if he really hasn't cut the apron strings and the purse strings from his mom? Interesting that the Lord speaks to men about that specific thing. So he says therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You want to underline that in your Bible. One flesh. You see for years I read the scripture as if it said, and they shall become one. The two shall become one. But it doesn't say that. It says the two will become one flesh. Now listen, folks. This is specifically relating to the consummation of the marriage, or the act of coming together physically. We see Jesus uses this truth in Matthew, and it's repeated in Mark. And then Paul Now in this next verse uses it within the wedding chapter that we find in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31. And this is what Paul says. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Notice he's quoting. And the two shall become one flesh. So notice Genesis in the Old Testament, Ephesians in the New Testament gives us the same advice about becoming one. So you can see, it does not say one spirit. It says one body. Now this next verse that I'm gonna be reading comes to us kind of from left field because both of those previous verses were referring to marriage and so we make the assumption that the act of coming together physically always indicates or bears reference to a solid Marriage. But look at what it says here in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 and 16. This is what Paul says. He says, And do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Look at verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body, Or one flesh with her. I want you to notice something, folks, that it is possible to become one flesh with someone outside of wedlock. So, therefore, we can argue that the fact that a married couple come together physically is not what it takes to make for a good marriage. He says here, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. This is referring to the body of a believer and a harlot. I want to say this again. In the verse we've just read, notice that Paul's reference to one body is not or has got nothing to do with a husband and wife's union, but rather with an adulterous affair. Can you see that this becoming one has specifically got to do with a physical union between a man and a woman. But that physical union is not what makes for a successful marriage. You see, folks, it's becoming one in spirit that grants us access to God's power for a lasting union. Do I have a scripture to prove this? Well, let's take a look at the very next verse in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. It says the following. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, this begs the question. Is it possible for us to become one spirit with our spouses if when we accept Christ, we become one spirit with? with him and i'm talking about one in purpose one in unity one in goals one in spirit i believe that it is possible to become one in spirit with your spouse over and above over and above becoming one in flesh i'm talking about becoming one in spirit how does this work well think about it how did we become one in spirit with the lord jesus How did you and I become one in spirit with Jesus? Simply put, we died. Not physically, but we died to self. And I really pray the Holy Spirit explode this in your hearts today as I speak about how to have a successful marriage. Just one thing. So the Lord, so we don't die physically. But we died to self. In essence, we died to our desires. Jesus says this in Matthew 16 and verse 24, as I'm now going to draw a comparison between the born again experience becoming one with Jesus and becoming one in spirit with our spouses. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 16 24. He says, Then Jesus says, said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me now luke records jesus saying it this way luke says pick up your cross daily and follow me so we can therefore conclude that if the way we come into a relationship with Jesus, the way we become one in spirit with God is by dying to self. Surely, if the same ideology and spiritual principle is applied to our marriage, we and our spouses can become one in spirit. If you want a great relationship with the Lord, you're going to have to learn to die daily to self. Let me say this. If you want a great relationship with your spouse, you are going to have to learn to die daily to self. So let's further contrast this for a moment. If the same truth applies to becoming one with the Lord and then becoming one with our spouse. You see, when we come to Jesus or when you come to Jesus, what you're saying is this, Lord, I'm giving up on I, and I'm surrendering to thy. Likewise, when you enter into marriage, or when you enter into the marriage covenant, you have to be prepared to give up on me and surrender to we. You've heard me say this before, those of you that know me that the only thing I is good for is the cross. Paul the Apostle said, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It was Jesus when he prayed, said, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. I think when you wrap all this up, I suppose what I'm saying that successful marriages or unions are made of two people, made out of two people that would rather fight to be humble than fight to be right. I recall some years ago, Pastor Bev shared this example with me. And I thought it was so beautiful that I wanted to include it as an example of what I've just been saying about dying to self. You know, Pastor Theo is a creature of habit. And if you're watching this Apostle Theo, which I'm sure you are, Pastor Bev told me the story. Pastor Theo is a creature of habit. He always goes during the same weeks of the year to either Disney or to Hawaii on his vacations. Pastor Bev was saying to me, you "No, know, Pastor Andre, I like going around variety. I like action. She says, but you know, when I see the joy that the routine brings to Apostle Theo's heart, waking up in the morning and praying, she says, it's a sacrifice I'm more than willing to pay because it blesses me. And then she said, besides, I get to go with you to Zambia and go to Cuba and all over the place. So I get my fix. But I thought that that was such a beautiful example of Pastor Bev putting Pastor Theo's desires and needs over and above her own. Now, one could argue, but that's not the way to live. But hey, look at their marriage. I don't know a couple that is a greater example of faithfulness, dedication in a marriage union than our apostle and Pastor Bev. Let me say this, because your response may be something like this to, to that illustration. Well, talking about dying, Pastor Andre. I'll die the moment she does. I'll die, there's a condition. You put in the condition, you're saying, okay, I'll die the moment she does. You see, there's a problem with that mindset because (laughs) Jesus didn't make that a condition before he died for us. He didn't say to the Lord, hey, listen, I'll go to the cross, I'll die for them, but please Um, Father, just throw me a bone. Let me just see that there's something in their hearts that are inclined towards me. That that this will be kind of a fifty. No, no, no. Jesus didn't do that. Think about it for a second. Jesus Christ, the one with all authority, the dominant, so to speak, died first, so that we could live. You see, I also believe that in marriage, there will always be two different personalities. And it needs to be the stronger of the two personalities that dies first. So in your marriage, where you are right now, I'm sure by now, since you've known each other for a long time, you know exactly which is the dominant personality between the two of you. It's the one that's dominant that has to take the first step of humility and just decide, I'm going to die a little bit more. Trust God for the grace to do it and forgive a lot easier. Now, I'm about to look at a very, very powerful scripture on covenant. But before I do that, I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Because marriage is a covenant, right? Between two people. A covenant cannot be enforced. Whether in salvation or in marriage, Unless both parties die. I want to say it again. Listen to this carefully. A covenant cannot be enforced, whether in salvation or in marriage, unless both parties die. Now let's take a look at the scripture. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, bearing in mind everything I've said up until this point about our need to die to self, to kill the selfishness inside of us, look at what Hebrews 9 says For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one. Who made it? For a covenant is only valid, only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Family, think about the implications of that verse as we teach on marriage today. The Bible says, that as long as one of the two parties are alive, alive to themselves and selfish, the depth and the joy and the degree of the covenant that you walk in, both in salvation and in marriage, is completely contingent on how dead you really are. I mean, I could, I could stop right there. Just pose the question, Really, how dead are you? You see, as long as you're alive, you're gonna have a bad marriage. As long as Andre's alive to what he wants to do, how he wants to live, where he wants to go, how he wants to spend the finances, where he wants to live, as long as Andre's alive, I'm gonna have a terrible marriage. You know, in fact, think about it. I think the world would be a far better place if everyone would just die. Now, obviously, I'm not speaking about dying physically. Okay, I'm not speaking about dying physically. I mean, you, you read the story of the, in the Garden of Eden where the Lord said to Adam and Eve, "If you eat of this trap, if you eat of this apple or this fruit, you will surely die." We know that they both consumed the apple, but neither of them died physically, but they died spiritually. And so as I speak today about salvation and that covenant and marriage and that covenant, I want you to see the parallels that are drawn between these two by God himself in Scripture. In actual fact, he calls us the bridegroom. Jesus is the bride and we are the bridegroom. So salvation and marriage work similarly in the sense of covenant, And the Bible says that to the extent that you die to self is the extent that you will enjoy the benefits of the covenant. The truth is that every marriage conflict we will ever have is because one of us decided to sit up in the coffin. Think about it. Like Paul says, I've been crucified, I'm dead. The marriage conflicts we have is simply because we didn't decide to just stay dead. So here's my encouragement to you today as a pastor. Just stay dead. Why do I say that? Well, because for example, you cannot offend a dead person. Think about it. You can't offend a dead person. You can't berate a dead person. Dead people don't get mad. Dead people don't get jealous. There's a whole bunch of stuff Dead people don't do. In actual fact, listen, I dare you. The next time you go to a funeral, make sure, number one, no one's close to you. First point. Then what I want you to do is I want you just to shimmy up to the coffin. If it's an open casket, look down and just whisper to ever's resting and say, I really don't like you. In actual fact, I never have liked you. You... You know how everyone says that you look so lifelike? They're lying. You look as dead as a doornail. And then figure out for yourself if that dead person is gonna get up and say, ha, you've offended me. I can't move on. I'm wounded. No, that corpse just lays there. His feelings don't get hurt. They don't get mad, they don't wanna take revenge. They don't remember, you know why? He's dead. So here's a huge nugget. If you wanna have a successful marriage, just choose to stay dead. You know what? It's death that makes things easy to forget. I can promise you now, if someone stood over my coffin and I was laying there there as a body and my spirit's in heaven, and somebody began to say those things over to me. I'd say, listen, it's fine. It's fine. I'm with Jesus. You go ahead, do whatever you want. It's not going to affect me at all. I read a wonderful quote once that speaks so much to what I'm teaching on here. And this is what the quote said. It said, great marriages are made up of two great forgivers. In essence, great marriages are made up by two people who are dead to self. So we've taken a look at how we become one. Now let's take a look at why do we become one. And this is a very interesting verse in Malachi. Malachi is made up of four chapters. The first chapter has to do about what we're doing wrong in our faith. The second has to do with what we're doing wrong in our families. The third one has to do with what we're doing wrong in our finances. And then the fourth chapter is all about the promise of Jesus coming. So faith, family, finances. When we get those together, Jesus' promise of his return and restoration is outlined in the book of Malachi. So let's take a look because chapter 2 has everything to say about what's happening wrong within the family unit. And also why God is not receiving their offerings or their worship. Look at Malachi chapter 2 verses 13 through 16 it says this And this is the second thing you do You cover the altar of the Lord with tears with weeping and crying So he does not regard your offering anymore nor receive it with good will from your hands Yet you say for what reason Because the Lord has been witness between you And the wife of your youth. So notice over here, the Lord is addressing a problem between husband and wife. Very clearly. He says this in verse 14. Let's read verse 14 again. Yet you say, for what reason? Why are you not receiving my offerings, Lord? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. With whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one? Look at this. Having a remnant of the spirit. So here we can see God is speaking about the spiritual joining of husband and wife and why one? We're asking the question right now, right? God called us and created us to be one. Why one? Here's the answer. He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, Take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. I'll get back to that in a moment. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, again, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. There's a few things I'd just like to highlight in this verse before I give you a concluding illustration. The Lord has clearly said that there is treachery between a husband and wife. And so God completely rejects the offering or the gift or the worship. He sets that aside because things are out of order in the marriage. That's one thing, but the real focus of this verse that I want to draw your attention to is that the Lord says he's brought us together for the purpose of producing godly offspring. I'm going to speak about that in a moment, but let me address, I think, the portion of the scripture that stood out most for everyone, and that is where it says that God hates divorce. God doesn't hate divorced people. God hates divorce. Why? Because divorce hurts people. The Bible says it covers them in cruelty. Divorces are always such an ugly and divisive and terrible thing. And that's what God is saying. Another example in order to make you understand it a bit more clearly would be to say that God hates car wrecks because car wrecks hurt people. You see, folks, Malachi plainly tells us it's for godly offspring that we become one. And not just physical offspring, but what about spiritual offspring? You know, Deuteronomy tells us that when people come together, something happens. And this is what it says. It tells us that one of us can put 1,000 to flight, but two of us can put 10,000 to flight. God joins a husband and wife together to make them 10 times more effective. 10 times more powerful so that they can accomplish 10 times more by becoming one as opposed to remaining one. You can accomplish 10 times more. Have you ever wondered why God in the Old Testament introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's not just because God is announcing that he's a God of imperfect people, but more importantly, he's saying, guys, I'm a generational God. And if I move in one generation that serves me faithfully, I will move greater in the next generation and greater in the next generation. God moves generationally. And the same principle applies over here. He wants men and women to come together who are completely dead to self and want to love each other so that we can become 10 times more powerful in the spirit. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 says that speaking about unification in wedlock. It says, husbands, likewise dwell with them with under whose them? Your wife. Dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, why the Lord didn't switch that around and say to the wives, dwell with your husbands with understanding? I think because husbands are a lot less complex, basically. I mean, feed us, give us a TV remote And um, we're, we're happy. We're a lot less complicated. But the Bible says to husbands, dwell with them in an understanding way. So guys, that'll take the pressure right off. We're never gonna understand them. Let's just die to self, live with them and be spiritual dynamite together. You see folks, we can't be praying for the world no matter how well intentioned your prayers may be while there is discord in our marriage. In actual fact, the only prayer that God wants to be hearing from us when we're out of order, like spoken about in Malachi, is this. He wants to hear us say, Lord, grant me more grace in order that I may die to self. Lord, as a living sacrifice, I've, I've crawled off the altar somehow. Forgive me and help me get back on there again for your glory. As I wind up the service, I just want to share one or two closing thoughts with you. Suppose for a moment, Adam was on the other side of the Garden of Eden when Eve sinned. How do you suppose the story would have played out? Now, please indulge me. I know that this didn't happen, but just indulge me for a second as I make a point in conclusion. As I speculate and paint this scenario, there may be many of you watching online that find yourself in this very position today. So Adam's on the other side of the garden of Eden when Eve stumbles. The father would have perhaps come to Adam and said to his son, son, the bride that I created for you has sinned. And as a result, She has to die. I'm so sorry. Now bearing in mind that the Bible calls us the bride of Christ, just like Eve was the bride of Adam. And just like Adam's bride, every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I can just imagine God saying to Jesus, Son, the bride I prepared and created for you has sinned and must die. And almost Adam in a pill saying, Father, but I love her. Can you imagine Adam, his response at this news? I, I don't want her to die to which God, I'm sure, would have responded and said, someone has to. If not her, then who? And I could imagine Jesus as our Lord and Savior saying, let it be me. I'll die so that my bride can live. What an amazing picture of humility, of sacrifice in order to create a family. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. You see, that family is the perfect marriage. It's not complicated. We just have to be willing to die. So Jesus was willing to pay that price. I want you to take a moment, just a moment and think about it. Right now, where you at? Husbands and wives, I'm gonna ask you just to hold each other by the hand. And under your breath or in your heart, just say to the Lord, Father, in what area of my life do I need to die more so that this covenant can last. While you're reflecting on that, while every head is closed, every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if you're watching this for the very, very first time, I've just shared that illustration with you and told you exactly what Jesus was prepared to do to redeem you. And the truth, folks, is you can't have a successful, lasting, fulfilled marriage without Jesus. Marriage is a God-ordained institution. It's God-ordained. He knows the rules, the laws of marriage. He set them out. And so if for no other reason today, accept Jesus so that your marriage can be successful. But beyond that, he died for you. And so while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I want to pray a prayer with you. If you sense the Lord moving upon your heart and saying, Lord, I want to surrender. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. I want you to pray this prayer after me. Say this. Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I know that I have sinned, not only in my marriage and in my relationships, but I've sinned in life. Today, I ask that you would forgive me and cleanse me of all of my sins. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and save me. Lord, I promise to serve you and to love you until the day I meet you face to face. Jesus, I believe that you died for me and that you rose to life again so that I could rise and live. I surrender my life to you today completely. I am now yours. You are now mine in Jesus' wonderful name. Well, if you made that commitment to Jesus today, we're so excited and I wanna say welcome to the family. If that's you, won't you please just text SAVED to 4991. Text SAVED to 4991 or just comment in the link below. We're just so glad that you've joined us. And really, when we open our doors again, I really hope that you're gonna come and visit with us and become part of this physical family. But God bless you, everybody. It's been wonderful spending this time with you. God bless you. And remember, die a bit more to self so that your covenant marriage can be strong. In Jesus' name, God bless you. Goodbye.